It's good to see you. Hey, could you help me thank Chris Stevens for joining us as a guest worship leader today? Such a great job. He's a uh, Toronto Blue Jays fan, so he comes for hope uh, in the midst of, <laughs> of a Sunday service. But hey, it's so great to have you here this morning. We get a chance now to transition to a time of teaching if you are new or visiting today. And we have been in a series now for three weeks. This is part four in a seven-part series entitled Kingdom and Empires. And so I'd like to invite you all to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 this morning. And in a few moments, we will jump into this. But um, what I'd like to have you do is that if you do need a copy of Scripture, our ushers are coming through the aisles right now. They'd love to get you a copy of Scripture. Uh, page number is on the screen behind me, and we will be jumping into Matthew 11 in just a little bit. But uh, if you've been part of this for the last three weeks, uh, Craig and I, we've, we've covered a lot of ground in three weeks. And so before we dive into Matthew 11 today, just want to take you on, on a quick review to catch up for those of you who may have missed a week or who maybe just be joining us today. Um, but also if you have been here for the last three weeks, just to get that that, that content and material back into our heads of exactly what we are talking about with the kingdom of heaven. So Craig kicked us off talking about the life of Jesus. Oftentimes we focus on his birth or his death, but we fail to recognize that nearly 90% of the gospels are all in the life of Jesus. And so Craig talked about the life of Jesus and then we rooted that life in the grand narrative of the biblical text. So two weeks ago, we tackled Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And we basically said you could summarize the entire Bible in one word, shalom. The Hebrew word that means wholeness, well-being, everything is as God intends it to be. It was there in the garden, it gets shattered with the fall, and then the rest of the story is reclaiming that shalom. And we rooted Jesus' life in the midst of the narrative because for Jesus, he said, the reason why I came was this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And so central to the story of shalom is this understanding of the kingdom of heaven because it was through Jesus' life and his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that all of hope is possible, that shalom will become a full-blown reality at the end of the story. And for Jesus, he said, everything had to do with the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Now, a quick thing to clarify is kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, and then the other gospels use kingdom of God, and it creates confusion at times. Here's what you need to know. They're the exact same thing. And you go, then why isn't presented the same way all throughout the New Testament scriptures? Well, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and this preserves the name kingdom of heaven. Here's why is that for the ancient Jews, they did not pronounce the name of God. They did not say God's name. They took this very seriously when God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God lightly or in vain or however you decide to translate Exodus 20. And even today, I have Jewish friends who will shoot me an email and they'll use the word God, but they'll put G hyphen D. So it's just a tradition of not pronouncing the name of God. And so they used substitutes, other names for God in place of his covenantal name. And so they said things like Adonai, which is Lord, or Hashem, the name, Hagivarah, the power. And one of them was Shemaim, which is heavens, or how we would say heaven today. And so heaven was a nickname for God. And even though it's in Luke's gospel where it's predominantly kingdom of God, in the prodigal son story, the prodigal comes home and he says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against 
you. And so Matthew preserves what everybody would have understood in the Jewish world, but because Mark and Luke and the others are writing to more of a Gentile audience, they change it and use the name of God so that it's clear for that Gentile audience. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the kingdom of God. Now, last week, Craig walked us through the idea of kingdoms and this definition from Dallas Willard, it's the range of your effective will. It's that space with which you want to have happen, happens. And Psalm 116, 15 says, the highest heavens belong to the Lord. Heavens is how the ancients talked about heaven. They say heaven is a realm where things are as God intends it to be. God's will, God's way happens in heaven. God's authority is unimpeded in heaven. But then it says in the rest of the verse, but the earth he has given to mankind, which is the writer's way of saying earth functions a little bit differently than heaven. And we all say, thank you very much for that observation. We actually didn't need that. Right? We don't need Sherlock Holmes to tell us the earth functions differently than heaven. And Craig talked about that basically heaven, or excuse me, earth is a battleground between these forces of heaven and hell or good and evil or shalom and chaos. And it's happening right here in the midst of our lives and our story in our world. You see, again, the idea of the stories is it's all about shalom. And so when it happens, when God's will and way begins to break into our world, that chaos gets pushed out, that evil gets pushed out, that hell-like reality gets pushed out and it's replaced with shalom. So when we say kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, here's the definition that we're working from. We've referenced this the last couple of weeks, but we just really wanted you to see this. It's the rule and reign of God advancing here on earth bringing healing and wholeness. That when we talk about this power that's released in the world, and it began with Jesus, and we're gonna talk about John as well, it was that God's rule and reign, this restoration project broke onto the scene with the person of Jesus and John, unprecedented in human history, to bring healing and wholeness to humanity. Because again, the whole story is about shalom. It's about the restoration of all things. And so when God's will and God's way enters, chaos gets pushed out and shalom becomes the reality. This is why Jesus talks about God's kingdom coming here on earth. Now, Craig ended with this last week, which I hope you found incredibly helpful. But the whole goal of recognizing that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign breaking forth in the world is that we all have our own little empires. It's our range of our effective will. It's what we want happens and it affects other people. So for example, my little empire affects how I live my life, my wife. It affects my kids. It affects my friends, my extended family. It also impacts you. How I choose to live my life, the decisions I make, impact you because you are in my sphere of interaction. You have influence as well. Your decisions matter. And it's not just for you, it's for a whole host of people because your little empire interacts with other little empires and there is 
a net effect. There is a give and take. There is a relationship that unfolds. And so the goal is, is how can we orient our little empires to God's kingdom? Basically take our little realms of influence, move them in to say, okay, God, your will, your way, so that we experience in our own lives... God's will and way breaking into us and we experience shalom and wholeness and what's more, we then become a conduit through which God impacts other people as well. This is why Jesus said, pray to his disciples, our father who is in heaven, that realm where things are as God intends them to be, May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God, may your will and your way break into my life. But what's more, any good Jewish disciple of Jesus would have recognized a prayer like that in the context of God's people being a kingdom of priests was understood, God, make this a reality in my life. But you also recognized you had a responsibility in joining God to make that true here on earth. So we orient our little empires to God's kingdom so that we experience shalom and wholeness and we become a conduit through which God can reach other people. Does everybody track with what we're talking about here? Okay, does that make sense? Good, there's a lot of nods going like this. Fabulous. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 11 and let's tackle one of the most, if not the most confusing passage that has to do with the kingdom of God. So Matthew chapter 11 We are going to look at John the Baptist today. John the Baptist was the forerunner to the ministry of Jesus. And in this passage, we find out that he has been put in prison. He has upset the apple cart. He has basically gotten the guy who oversees him, who oversees the area, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, ticked him off. He gets thrown into prison and he's going to send two disciples to have a conversation with Jesus. Jesus is going to have the conversation, and we'll come back to that conversation in just a little bit. But those two disciples will leave. Jesus is going to turn to the crowd, and notice what he says about John the Baptist, verse 11 of Matthew 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then here's where the confusing passage is. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. So this is our passage that we're going to launch from today. Let me throw this up here because it's one of those passages you just also got to see as well. Now, this passage gets translated a plethora of ways. You open up the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, or the NLT, or the NET, or the NSV, you get all these through these things, and you're going to find them all differently. Themes, yes, similar, but in some cases, they're going to be very different. And the reason why they all get translated a little bit different is because there are two key Greek words in this passage that have given scholars a little bit of trouble in trying to understand how does this fit into this understanding we have of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, where the rule and reign of God is advancing here on earth, bringing with it healing and wholeness. So let me show you one of these two words, and then we'll come to the second word here in a few minutes. The first is this phrase that says, has been subjected to violence. It's one word in Greek, it's the word biazo, and it means to force, use violence, or to break out or break forth. 
Now, according to this translation that we use here, it's using the use violence aspect to translate this passage. But it's this last part to break out or break forth that seems to be a window to more helpfully under, help us understand what's going on. Now, I'm indebted to a guy by the name of Brad Young. He's a brilliant scholar uh, who's part of what's called the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Research. It's a group of people who've been working on the life of Jesus. And he wrote a great book called Jesus, the Jewish Theologian, in which he spends all of chapter five unpacking this passage with not only the two Greek words, but also the picture that seems to be behind this. Because when we understand has been subjected to violence could actually be used in the context of breaking out or breaking forth, there is a biblical story that seems to be the backdrop to what Jesus is saying at this moment in Matthew 11. So let me take you there to Micah chapter 2. Micah is one of the prophets. Micah prophesies during the time of the both northern and southern kingdoms. So it's the divided kingdom. The northern and southern kingdoms have not been taken out by Assyria or Babylon yet, but Micah prophesies that this is going to happen. So in the midst of this, he's talking about how the exile, or the, the Jewish people are going to be exiled, and at some point, God is going to bring them all together. Notice with me verse 12 of Micah chapter 2. God speaking through Micah says this, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. So hold on to that, sheep in a pen. Like a flock in its pasture, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king, reference to the Messiah here, will pass through before them the Lord at their head. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. But let's show you the image that this passage is using, sheep in a pen. So here is a picture of a sheep pen, of a sheepfold. This is actually one that I took in Turkey. You'll find similar ones in Israel, although you won't find the same green <laughs> landscape very much in Israel. But what you shepherds would do is at the end of the day, they would bring their entire flock and as a way of protecting the sheep during the night, they would stick them inside of a sheepfold like that and the animals would be really snug tight together. Now here's a picture from another angle of the doorway in which after all of the sheep are brought in, the shepherd will either put up like a board or just take more stones and pile in that gap so it protects the sheep, it's a full enclosure. Now in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I sit in the gate. I protect my sheep. I'm the one who stands between my sheep and those who want to prey upon them. But for shepherds in general, they would use a big board or they would use rocks. And then in the morning, after sheep have been penned up all night, what do they want to do? They want to get out of there. Okay, it's kind of like after your kids have been in the car for an extended period of time. And we found this out recently. We were down in Alabama, so lots of driving. I remember getting to a rest stop. We stopped, we opened up the doors, and it's like they flew out the doors. And I'm flying out my door to make sure they don't get hit in the parking lot because they just want to get out. 
right? Or it's like you've been on an international flight for far too long. You know that feeling you land, you hit the runway, everybody kind of breathes a little bit and then you taxi for a while and then you're just waiting for that moment to when it actually stops and then the ding goes off and then everybody jumps out of their seat. Yeah, I was on a Southwest flight recently. It was so funny because when it came to that moment of the ding, the pilot coincided with over the intercom, all rise. (laughs) Everybody's jumping out of their seat. You're like, they're not even gonna open the door for like five minutes. What are you doing? But it's that moment of you've been cooped up, you've been penned in and you just want to break out. Because the sheep are so ready to break out, what the shepherd will do is kick down the door or kick down the rocks, and all of a sudden the sheep just go breaking out. Now, this passage talks about that imagery, but it talks about the breaker, the one who breaks open the way, i.e. the one who kicks down the gate. It talks about a king, and then it also talks about the sheep. Now, Brad Young, who has posited this, and a number of other scholars have come on his heels in the last several years saying he is absolutely right. It is Micah 2 that is at the backdrop of Matthew chapter 11. Because the imagery here is that John is the one who kicks down the gate, and Jesus comes bursting forth on the scene with the sheep breaking out behind him. So this is, this is this language back here is that if we go with this latter part of the translation, we can change this to has been breaking forth. That is from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth and violent people. This phrase violent people is connected to the same word biazzo. So if we update that, you can say has been breaking forth and those breaking forth are doing something. This says rating it. This word rating it is the Greek word harpazo, which can mean to seize as in to raid. It can mean to snatch away, but it can also mean to pursue or to seek. And putting this all together, you can translate this last part, have been pursuing it, which puts the entire passage as from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth and those breaking forth have been pursuing it. That John kicks down the gate, but it is the king, according to Micah 2, that goes out first. John kicks down the gate. Jesus, in a sense, comes bursting through, and the sheep are behind him. The kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth. The rule and reign in God of God has been advancing in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and it is the disciples who are pursuing after it because they're praying a prayer, Lord, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is what seems to be going on with this passage. And this is why, because from the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven, even on this graphic that you have, and if you haven't gotten a paper copy, there's still some in the information desk, is that we have the kingdom of heaven aligned up with the name of John the Baptist and Jesus above, as that is where it starts getting kicked into high gear. Because this is what John did and Jesus races out on the scene. Now, Jesus is saying 
The kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth. It has been forcefully advancing since the time of John, which leads us to a very central question that I would imagine many of us have as we continue to think through the implications of this series and what we're talking about. And here's the question. The question is this, then why is the world still so messed up if the kingdom has been breaking forth since the time of John and Jesus until now? Like, why are things the way that they are? Well, you know what? John had the exact question as well. Let's go and get the larger context for Matthew chapter 11. So if you happen to head to Micah 2 and you didn't hold your place in Matthew 11, page 976, for those of you who have that Bible. Matthew chapter 11, here's the larger context. We mentioned before that John has been put in prison. Notice what stirred the sending of his disciples to Jesus. Notice with me verse two. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, key phrase there, deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, when people have read this in the past, they have said, John here is questioning Jesus as the Messiah. He is questioning the messianic identity of Jesus. He's not. Over and over again, John is saying, Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one who was to come. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Over and over and over, John is certain that Jesus is the Messiah. By the way, Jesus was also John's cousin. They had a relationship, and John believed in every fiber of his being, Jesus is the Messiah. So we asked, well, then what's he doing sending his disciples to say, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? What John is doing in this moment is that he is questioning Jesus' messianic agenda. Again, verse 2 says, the deeds of the Messiah. Jesus is doing things that fit in line with the Messiah, but there are other things Jesus isn't doing that John expected the Messiah to do. Back in Matthew 3, when John gets introduced in the Gospel of Matthew, John has a number of images that he has given to the people he is preaching to to prepare them for the coming Messiah. One of them in Matthew 3, he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Why is he using this language? Well, it's an, it's an image of judgment. See, John has a view of what's called the bipartite view of history. Now, here's what that means. Jews in the first century world predominantly had a view that there were only two parts to history. This is what John holds to as well. There is everything leading up to the coming of the Messiah. So that's the former age or the present age, you could say. And then when the Messiah comes, the Messiah ushers in the end times. For the Jews, they expected when the Messiah came that that person would come forth that they would bring in and usher in the end times. They would bring about justice and restoration and then God would rule and reign from Jerusalem. This is why John says to those who are listening, the ax is already at the root of the trees because he says when the Messiah comes, the end times come with him. The problem was Jesus didn't hold to that view of history. Jesus 
had a tripartite view of history. Three parts. That went, there was everything leading up to the coming of the Messiah. And then there was what's called the Messianic period. And then Jesus introduced something called the second coming. So for John, he expected with Jesus comes the end. But for Jesus, what he's trying to help people to understand in the midst of his ministry is, no, 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 no. That moment is not now. That moment will come with the second coming at the end of the story. But for now, it is not that. This is why John sends two disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And what John is doing is he's challenging Jesus's messianic agenda. Now, here's why. John, who is a Jewish rabbi, is having a conversation through two disciples with another uh, Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus. And rabbis, not only in their teaching, but in conversing with one another, would do this thing called remez. And remez is a Hebrew word that means hint. And so a rabbi would use a key phrase, and that phrase would connect you back to passages in the Hebrew scriptures. There was a larger context there that was being imported into the present moment. When John says, are you the coming one? These are in reference to passages in the Hebrew scriptures about what the coming Messiah would do. Now we don't have time to look at all these today, but we're pulling from Daniel. We're pulling from Micah, or excuse me, Malachi. And we're also pulling from Isaiah. This coming one language is found in those three books, those three prophets talking about the Messiah who was to come. And there was all of these things that were listed. So for example, Jesus in his ministry, in Luke 4, we read this passage a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and says, this is what I am doing. So let me just read this to us again. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, there are other passages in the background, but this is a central one. Now listen to what Jesus' response is to John's disciples. Jesus replied, verse 4 of Matthew 11, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, very similar, very similar, Jesus' response. But below the surface, Jesus has not only given a litany to John of the things that the kingdom is doing, John, Jesus also tells John something that he doesn't want to hear. See, when John says, are you the coming one? He says, get on with your messianic agenda. Like, what are you doing? And Jesus goes, tell John these things. And so those disciples go back and they go, okay, John, here was Jesus's response. Jesus's response was, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. John's question is, did he say anything about freedom for the prisoners? Uh... No, he, he didn't say anything. About, are, are you sure? Because that's like part of the passage. Is like he said he was going to come and do this. Are you sure he didn't say anything about freedom for the prisoners? And the disciples go, I'm sorry, John. He didn't say anything about that. In that moment, John knows his story has come to an end. This is how rabbis talk to each other. 
This is how they hid messages within it. This is how they dialogued. And because part of the messianic agenda, and even Jesus says, this is what I'm doing, when he's speaking to John, he doesn't include that because Jesus' word to John is, buddy, you're done. And this is precisely why the very next line in Matthew 11, Jesus says, and tell John, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John, the kingdom is advancing. I am doing these things, but not everything, John, you expected is happening. John struggled with what Jesus was doing because he wasn't doing exactly what John thought God was going to do. And not only was John struggling with this, the people of Israel were struggling with this as well because we know what their messianic expectations were. There was a number of them. They thought that the Messiah to come would teach the Torah with utmost brilliance because the Messiah to come was also called the second Moses. And because Moses was the one who gave the commandments of God to the people, it was the Messiah who would come and take those commandments further. That's why when Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, he's taking it further. He's living into the messianic expectation that the one who was to come would be so in tune to the words of God that they would expound and teach it with utmost brilliance. Jesus was doing that. They believed the Messiah would bring healing and wholeness to people, that there would be power that this person would have to push out diseases, to heal people spiritually, to heal people physically, to heal people emotionally, to give them restoration and wholeness. And Jesus was doing that, but fundamental to the consciousness of the Jews of the first century world is that the Messiah would come and fight a decisive battle against that foreign, pagan, oppressive empire at that time, Rome. And because of that successful military battle, he would usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness where God would rule and reign from Jerusalem, Israel would be vindicated, justice would reign supreme, and everything would be made right. And not only does Jesus not fight a decisive battle against the Romans, he dies on a cross at their hands in the most humiliating way possible. The people struggled to understand when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth, the kingdom of heaven has arised, God's rule and reign is advancing here on earth. They were like, but I don't get what that means because God isn't doing what I thought God was going to do in my life and in my story if it is true that God's will and reign is advancing here on earth. And this is precisely why Jesus told stories. See, they weren't privy to the rest of the story. They weren't privy to the cross and the empty tomb when Jesus is giving the good news about the kingdom. They're not privy to the revelation that God is going to give to John, the disciple who's going to write revelation to give us Revelation 21 and 22 about how at the second coming everything is going to be made right. They were not privy to that. So the way that Jesus tried to get them to understand what was going on is Jesus told stories about what the kingdom was like. And I want to look at one such story with our time this morning. Notice with me two chapters later, Matthew 13, Jesus is going to give a story about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I want you to listen to this as if you are a first century Jew who is looking for God's rule and reign to advance powerfully and mightily on earth 
That when you're in oppression and you're experiencing the heartache of Rome dominating you and you're in your own homeland and you believe the Messiah is on the scene and that God's kingdom is coming, how are you going to hear these words that Jesus says? Listen to this in verse 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. How do you hear that? Let me tell you how I hear that as a first century Jew. Jesus, are you smacked out of your mind? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? Like we're, we're talking about kingdom here. We're talking about dominance. We're talking about power. We're talking about strength. We're talking about you reclaiming earth. And we're going to talk about this in the context of a mustard seed? No, 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 no. Jesus, Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a hammer. The kingdom of heaven comes with power. It comes with force. It's not like a little mustard seed. No, 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 no. It's a hammer. It's... It comes with loud awareness. It comes with strength. It comes with power. It comes in a way that we know it comes. It's swift. It's powerful. You can clearly see that the rule and reign of God is happening in our, no, no, no. The kingdom of heaven is like a hammer. And yet Jesus goes, no, it's actually more like a mustard seed. It's about a hundred in my hand here. Friends, it takes 21 thousand mustard seeds to get one ounce. 21,000. Ten years ago, my wife and I made our first trip to Israel. Amazing experience, and we're coming through Chicago O'Hare, and you have to fill out on the airplane, you know, those customs forms. And on there it says, are you bringing any uh, food or seeds or soils back into the country? And I had to check yes. So we got into customs, handed my sheet to the guy. He looks at it and he goes, we need you to go over there, right? The special room. So I go over there and I unpack my bag and the guy starts pulling out and he sees that I have rocks from different places and I have sand from Caesarea and red sand from the Timna, the southern region, and I've got dirt from over here, all in Ziploc bags. And he goes, sir, what is this? And I was like, well, these are rocks that I, I, I snagged in Israel, like really cool places or really key moments in the teachings or something that God did in that moment. And, and I have all these different soils and sands from these different places and I'm telling him where they're all from. And and he goes, um, he goes, I'm sorry, sir, you're, I'm not going to allow you to bring any of this into the country. And I also had mustard seeds in there as well. And I'm like, what? Are you serious? He's like, yeah, I can't let any of it in. Then I got into negotiation mode. <laughs> 
and I presented a case. Listen, I, I, I'm a student of the biblical text and, and I want to be a pastor and I want to be able to teach and I want to be able to use visual aids and this stuff was really meaningful to me. And, and I said, and what's more is I'll make sure that, that, that I put it in, you know, in, in jars and cork it. I will make sure none of this gets out. And apparently this conversation worked because he says, okay, you promise me, sir, that as soon as you get back home, that these things will end up in glass glass faces with corks and vials and all this stuff and none of this will ever get out. And I said, I promise it to you. He goes, okay, you can keep it all. Except for those mustard seeds. I go, why? Because because I know something about mustard in Israel. I know something about wild mustard. And once that thing gets into the ground, you can't stop it because it will spread like crazy. Starts off very small, but even one seed can quickly end up like this. It has this amazing capacity for growth. Around the Sea of Galilee, this can get to be 10 feet, 12 feet, 15 feet tall. And when mild mustard begins to go, you can't stop it. You see, when Jesus said it was the smallest of all seeds, the people knew it wasn't the smallest seed. The orchid seeds are smaller, and we know from writings that people knew this in Jesus' day. But what Jesus was doing is he was making a comparison because this was the smallest seed that had this kind of capacity for growth. And not only does the mustard spread slowly underneath the surface. It's very pervasive. So then once it starts moving slow, it actually begins to pick up, but you don't see it until all of a sudden it breaks forth. Is that when all of this mustard continues to grow and expand, it becomes really, really powerful. And there are stories that are recounted of mustard growing up in areas where there are massive boulders and the mustard shoved the boulders out of the way in order to continue its growth process. It blows people's mind the strength of mustard. And it starts off so incredibly small. It's like when Jesus says, okay, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Perhaps we could just say this is what Jesus is saying, that the kingdom advances through the small and seemingly insignificant. We want the... Obvious, loud, I can see it. It's having an impact right now. Jesus goes, it's, it's kind of more like a mustard seed. Now, we don't like to hear this any more than they do, right? We don't like this idea that things just take time, that things can move very, very slowly, that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. We want results and we want them right now. We don't like this idea any more than they did. We we, we could say this, we want the addiction removed right now. We want the addiction removed. We want the marriage resolved. We want the prodigal back. We want the illness healed. We want the dead gone. We want the problem fixed. We want God's kingdom to come with great power. 
We have certain expectations, certain hopes about what God is doing and what God should be doing if in fact his kingdom is really breaking forth in our world and in our lives. Now, can God do this? Yes. And God has done that and God continues to do that. And many of you could give testimony to the way that God acted like this. In a sense, God did act like that, where it was swift and it was quick and it happened and you're like, this is amazing. Like the kingdom of heaven, God's rule and reign, God's healing, his power, his reconciliation, his restoration. It broke out on me and maybe it was in an instant, maybe it was over the course of an afternoon, maybe it was over the course of a week, but we recognize God still does this. But here's been my experience. God often works more through mustard-like seed events than he does in this way. Got some friends that uh, been going through a rough time. Uh, he is addicted and it's really kind of come to the forefront in the last few weeks. And they're in a rough patch right now. And we've been praying and he's been praying and Lots of people have been praying. And I'd love to stand before you today and say, as a result of the prayer, that addiction has been removed. I'd love to be able to say that this morning to you. And you know what? I can't. But you know what happened this week? He picked up the phone and he called and scheduled an appointment with a Christian counselor. See, yeah, you can, you can clap to that. You see, for those of us who are in that counseling world, we recognize that's actually a really big step. But let's, let's look at this the way that many of us look at this. Okay, the addiction is gone, right? Been struggling for decades and now it's just gone. That's the one end of the spectrum. It feels like on the other end of the spectrum, just picking up the phone and making a phone call, it seems so small and so seemingly insignificant. And yet... That is a mustard seed, friends. The kingdom of heaven is advancing in their story right here and right now. And we can't wait to see where this seed ends up because it is planted. We want the big. We want the dramatic. We want everything to happen in an instant. And when it doesn't, we often become discouraged, pessimistic. We lack a sense of hope because it isn't happening the way that we thought. Understand, friends, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. God is working inside of us. And it may be just the fact that they pick up the phone and they make a phone call to sit down and have a meeting. Maybe for some of you, the mustard seed-like activity that God is doing in your life is that you're actually sitting in this service today. That maybe you haven't been to church in a long time. Maybe you woke up early and going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but apparently I'm supposed to go to Central today. Whatever, the Spirit of God is working in you. The kingdom of heaven is advancing. And it may feel so small and seemingly insignificant that you're simply sitting in a church service this morning, but don't for a moment not believe that God isn't putting a mustard seed inside of you. The kingdom is advancing. Maybe for some of you this morning, 
you've been working through this debt. Maybe you've had debt, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. And you sit here going today, yeah, I'm only about $1,000 more not out of debt than I was five months ago. But you've gained back 1,000. And you've probably cut up a few credit cards along the way. Cutting that credit card may seem like such a small and insignificant thing. But the kingdom is advancing in those moments. Not only is God working in us, but friends, God also works through us in these small and seemingly insignificant things that we encounter in life. Uh, Just on Friday, I was at the gym, got done with a workout. I saw somebody I knew and we kind of walked towards each other and uh, he said, hey, hey, Brett, how, how you doing? I said, doing, doing pretty good. I said, Think, things have been going really well. I said, we're like in birthday season. Uh, four of, all four of my kids have birthdays within a seven week window, okay? We always joke that we've made it undeniably clear when we got bored in the winter, okay? So, I mean, and it's just like birthday after birthday after birthday after birthday. Like I am so high on cake right now, all right? Just like jittery all the time. And so I'm telling them and all this kind of stuff. And, and I said, you know, we're doing, we're doing well. We're in birthday season. We're celebrating the life that, that God has given us through our kids. And it's just been fun and it's been enjoyable. And I said, we're, just really, we're in a good place right now. Things are going well at Central. I said, it's a fun season. You know, the midst of this, of this series that I've been so geeked about and Craig's been so geeked about. We've been talking about this for months and months on end. I just said, things are going well. I said, how are you doing? And his face just dropped. He said, I'm actually not doing all that well. He said, my, my dad's in intensive care and kind of took a turn for the worse a couple days ago and we don't know where this is going, but uh, it, it's not good right now and I'm just, I'm just really having a hard time with it. And he spent about the next five minutes walking through what was going on, what had led up to this moment, what he was gonna be doing that night, spending the night with his dad in the hospital. And at the very end, he just said to me, he said, Brad, thank you for listening. I I just feel so much better. Now I did in those five minutes what I would imagine any of us would have done in here, just listened. But I was reminded in that moment that listening, however small and insignificant it felt, God used that listening to bring a bit of healing into his soul in those moments. God is not only working in us in mustard seed-like ways, but God also works through us in mustard seed-like ways. Friends, never lose sight of the fact that the kingdom advances through the small and seemingly insignificant. Never lose sight of the fact that you picking up the phone and having a conversation with someone doesn't have a massive impact on their story. Being willing to lend an ear, being willing to make a meal, being willing to sacrifice for someone in some way, however small and seemingly insignificant, It's a mustard seed. God works in those moments to do something phenomenal and fantastic. Don't underestimate the right word at the right time, however small that word may be or however seemingly insignificant that moment may appear. 
the kingdom of heaven advances through small acts of love and kindness. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Small. It's almost indiscernible. And yet when it hits the ground, it starts to grow, starts to advance, picks up steam. It gets really, really prevalent and really, really powerful. Friends, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth. God is reclaiming this world. However it seems at times like God is on the losing end, God knows what he is doing. And mustard seeds have been going out for the last 2,000 years. And at some point, we are going to see the harvest. We are going to see exactly what all of these mustard seeds are doing. But for the time being, friends, don't lose hope that the kingdom isn't advancing because it is. And more often than not, it is advancing through the small and seemingly insignificant. Continue to allow God to work in you and through you so that his kingdom comes, his will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Bless God. Let me say a word of prayer for you and then we will get you out of here. Father God, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we are reminded this morning that hope is not lost. That you are doing something in this world and that even though at times it may not happen the way we expect or hope, God, we pray that we would have eyes to see the circumstances and situations for what they are. It may not be the loud and dramatic, but give us eyes to see those mustard seeds. Give us eyes to see how you are working in us and how you are working through us to accomplish your purposes here on earth. Give us hope where we need hope. Give us courage where we need courage. Give us strength where we need strength. And God, here is what we are asking throughout this series. Would your kingdom come in powerful ways to those who are hurting, who are experiencing chaos and brokenness and pain and pessimism and frustration and heartache. God, would your kingdom come? Would it demonstrate itself with great power in our lives? And we ask this all in the strong, powerful name of Jesus who conquered sin and death, who will come again and who will make all things right. It's in his name that we put our hope and our strength to do what you are asking us to do in this world. Amen. Amen. I'd like to have you stand and uh, we'll get you out of here. Quick word, if you are a guest, so great to have had you here this morning. You can go out through those doors. There's a welcome area that says hello. We'd love to connect, answer any questions you may have. People up front would love to pray with you, talk with you. They'll be wearing generally orange tags. They're over here. So yes, some people will have orange tags. I'll be up here. And if you would like to connect with somebody in... Uh, off the lobby, there's a more private uh, prayer area that you can go to as well. My friends and family, may you leave here today knowing that the kingdom of heaven is advancing.
It is oftentimes like a mustard seed. It's small, it's seemingly insignificant, but God is at work both in you and through you. And my prayer is that you would have the eyes to not only see how God is working, but may you feel it as well. Grace and peace be with all of you. We look forward to seeing you next week. Take care.